On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, review the rising crisis in anesthesia and ASCs and the supervision of CRNAs, discuss the concerns about the role of private equity in the anesthesia crisis, celebrate Sterile Processing Week, and in our focus segment for Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we discuss cybersecurity with Paul Elcock from Surgical Information Systems. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 201 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for October 9th, 2023, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, co-host of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly changing landscape and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it's important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by the relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. We're just back from the New York State Association meeting in Albany at the Desmond Hotel in Albany mm-hmm. uh, last week. Yep. And uh, had a lot of fun there. We had, uh, I think, uh, 12, 13 of our employees there. Plus, we had the pleasure of having Christina Benton joining yes. us in person mm-hmm. at the conference and at the mm-hmm. pre-conference. So uh, uh, it was a great conference, uh, probably record attendance for um, the attendees as well as record attendance for mm-hmm. the sponsors or for the uh, the exhibitors. The vendors, right. Yep. And uh, we had a big presence with our vendor booth also and got to tell everybody about our boot camp. It's still amazing to me, Sue. I know I keep saying this, that people don't know about our podcast, and certainly there were quite a number of people. But we also had the opportunity to speak to a lot of our loyal listeners from New mm-hmm. York State. And we saw a lot of our clients as well from yep. New York State. We did have uh, our annual New York State client meeting. Um, which uh, is usually the day before that state conference. Uh, And then we coupled it with a pre-conference where all the attendees could get an additional three uh, AEUs and an additional one uh, IPCH if they attended the uh, uh, the state association conference. Mm-hmm. So uh, we always get a lot of good feedback from our clients. It also is very helpful for us to uh, you know make sure that they're fully aware of all the services that we offer mm-hmm. uh, and get uh, keep them up to date on all of the changes that uh, we're constantly doing to our the way we provide our services to improve the uh, the services that we offer. And Sue, we're gearing up for the October Director of Nursing Boot Camp, which is later this month, uh, and it goes into November. 
And then we're also gearing up for the November conferences. On November 16th, we have the introduction of finance and accounting and ASCs, first time ever. Uh, for mm-hmm. this full-day conference. Uh, it was uh, based on some recommendations from of our, some of our loyal listeners, uh, as well as some of our boot camp members. And the following day, on November 17th, we have uh, an update to the Conditions for Coverage and Interpretive Guidelines Conference. So uh, this is, you know, th- th- it's a very popular program that we had in, uh, I think we recorded in 2021. And of course, a lot of changes have occurred since 2021. Uh, so we're uh, we're updating that conference. It'll be uh, live and, and recorded. Uh, both of these conferences, the uh, Introduction of Finance and Accounting and the Conditions for Coverage and Interpretive Guidelines conferences are going to be available on demand after we record uh, that event, that, mm-hmm. uh, that live virtual event on November 16th and 17th. So, and remember, if you're a patron or a premium access member, you get access to those programs for no additional charge in addition to your regular, uh, usually weekly drop-in Zoom sessions with the hosts and the surveyors. We, we have so much fun on those drop-in sessions. I know we talk about it quite a bit here because uh, we've become quite good friends with many of our patrons over the uh, last couple of years since we've been doing that. And that uh, patron program starts at $25 a month. There's also a more advanced uh, and there's also a, a premium access program that's available. All of that's available on asc-central.com. That's asc-central.com. That's our ASC Central website. Um, last episode in episode 200, which by the way, um, we, it was surprising to me that that was a little over two hours uh, mm-hmm. of information. And uh, during the State Association Conference, uh, quite a number of people had uh, commented that they listened to the whole thing and they thought yeah. it was very good, you know, especially those that had to travel a long distance to get to the State <laughs> Association meeting. So we do encourage you to, uh, to listen to that episode. But during that episode, we talked a little bit about the use of the term MAC or monitored anesthesia care. And we've getting, we're getting a little bit of pushback from some anesthesiologists on this uh, on this situation because yeah. there are some anesthesiologists that insist that uh, monitored anesthesia care should be continued or should continue to be used in uh, in documentation and I, we've tried to point out to them that monitored anesthesia care is an inappropriate term for things like consents or in your anesthesia mm-hmm. record because it doesn't indicate the actual level of anesthesia that's being provided. So just to reiterate, the focus here in removing the term MAC from your documentation is because we want to make sure that the, that the level of anesthesia, like uh, minimal, moderate, uh, deep, or uh, or general, general. anesthesia, mm-hmm. um, is, is fully uh, explained to the patient beforehand mm-hmm. and documented in that consent, as well as being documented in the actual um, uh, anesthesia record. Do you think they're concerned because they're afraid that they might go to a slightly deeper level? Um, yeah, that's, and how would you address that? That's a really good question, and and um, and because we're not quite sure, we we don't get a lot of uh, of uh, good feedback, I should mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. from the anesthesiologists. They seem yeah. to be a little bit upset about this, and I I think that might be part of it. And and the the simple answer to that, as you and I both know, is that we we ask for. Um, when we're consenting to a procedure, we indicate the lowest level of anesthesia that's going to be provided. And, of course, mm-hmm. the consent indicates that you might go to a different level mm-hmm. or a higher level yeah. depending upon what happens or what transpires mm-hmm. during the procedure. But you consent for the intended level. That I'm sorry. You're correct. Mm-hmm. I, we should be using the term intended, not the lowest level. I, mm-hmm. I apologize there. Um, so, uh, again, we'll, we'll keep you up to date on this as we uh, continue to uh, – to, to make sure um, people are aware of it. And again, it is something survey 
taxpayers are watching for. You will be cited most likely uh, if they see you using the term MAC in your documentation. It's not a serious citation mm-hmm. yet, uh, but it could be in the future. And, and certainly try to explain to your anesthesiologist um, that the term MAC is actually a, more of a billing term because mm-hmm. uh, it certainly doesn't uh, actually indicate what the level of anesthesia is. And this week is sterile processing week, October 8th to the 14th. So we just want to remind you to, you know, acknowledge your sterile processors. They're kind right. of, they're always in the background sort of, but very very important job. So and a difficult it's, it's job. Nice. Yeah, and yeah. a very difficult job. Yeah. It's uh, it's it, they don't get you know, they're kind of stuck in that very mm-hmm. uh, high humidity room there and uh, yeah. uh, they do uh, hard work and uh, we we certainly appreciate it and and of course uh, without them and without their diligent work mm-hmm. we could have uh, significant infection Yeah, it has a huge patients. impact on patient care. It just isn't out front, like like a lot of the roles are, you know, nurses and doctors and that kind of thing. Right. So give them a little, you know, we maybe should, do something yeah. fun for them, some kind of reward. Yeah, and, you know, maybe hold a luncheon or something. Mm-hmm, We're going to get into mm-hmm. trouble for recommending some of these I things know. probably. <laughs> but, uh, but Just something thing. to acknowledge them. <laughs> And also, uh, it's always a good time, you know, when we're celebrating these weeks to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of uh, step back, take a look at the processes in that room. Uh, make sure, you know, this is probably a good opportunity for people that haven't gone into the sterile processing area to mm-hmm. kind of see what it takes to, uh, you know, to process the instruments there. Yeah, and you may find your sterile processors have, you know, some um, tips of things that they feel like will make their jobs easier, more effective, you know, maybe just haven't felt they had the opportunity to talk to you about it. So it's a good time to acknowledge them and and listen to them. And next week, it is International Infection Prevention Week. So kind of follows right right behind that. Right, exactly. So let's move on to recent news. Sue, you have an update on the Kaiser strike. So over 75,000 employees from Kaiser um, we're on strike for three days. They've returned to work now, but they'll, and they'll resume negotiations on Thursday. But there is a plan, if things don't change, for another longer strike in November. Um, the second strike would include even more workers as their Washington state members' contracts didn't, don't run out until the end of October. So there'll be more people added to that if, if they don't um, you know, come to a conclusion. Right. And, and, of course, they're negotiating contracts at the end of uh, – it would be for all of the, uh, uh, the members on the West Coast there. And I, I do believe mm-hmm. that Kaiser is starting to uh, move into uh, – move to the other side of the Mississippi. So uh, I, I don't uh, know what's going on there, but it's certainly something to keep an, keep an eye on as, mm-hmm. uh, as time goes on. And there was a class one recall of some Abbott Proclaim spinal cord stimulators. Um, these are used in pain control and for other conditions. Um, they found they have an inability to exit the MRI mode. This mode um, disables delivery of therapy during an MRI. But some people have found that just no way to get back out of that, so you can't um, reinitiate the therapy. Um, there's a full list of the models and how you would address this issue with the patients. Um, and that's on the FDA website. So if you use any of those, that's a, a good thing to check out. And from Becker's ASC review on September 14th, a Texas management company is being fined for violating the Stark Law. This company operates dermatology practices, ASCs, and laboratories. And they actually self-disclosed to the Justice Department that former managers of some recently acquired practices may have increased the purchase price of 11 practices in exchange for the provider agreeing to refer services to the company's affiliates um, following the acquisition. 
So the company has agreed to pay $8.9 million to settle these allegations. So they did go and admit that they had found this after they purchased, you know, the purchasing company. Yeah. it. So they didn't, they aren't the ones, the people that are currently working there didn't really do that, but it's still a violation and they're still having to pay that fine. The so substantial fine, you know, it, Again, it, it shows the importance of keeping an eye out for these things, certainly as part of the, the follow-up to the purchase. They, they took a deep dive into what was going yeah. on and and uh, identified uh, this problem and, and admitted it or, or self-reported immediately. And again, very important that you do that in your own ASC whenever you discover a problem. Well, you have a system in place as part of your corporate compliance plan to identify problems. And then when uh, if you do identify a problem with it being intentional or unintentional, mm -hmm. you know, work with your attorney to immediately, uh, you know, self-report to the Justice Department. Yeah. There was an interesting uh, – press release from the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, dated September 21st, uh, 2023. The Federal Trade Commission sued U.S. anesthesia partners. Uh, and the reason is the FTC is alleging that they engaged in a three-part strategy to monopolize the anesthesia market in Texas. They started by buying up nearly every large anesthesia practice in Texas to become a dominant provider. Uh, again, these are allegations from the FTC. Then they drove mm -hmm. prices up through the price-setting agreements with remaining independent practices. And then again, the FTC allegated that they then sidelined a competitor by striking a deal to keep it out of their territory. Uh, this is what they, uh, the FTC said in the, um, the press release. Private equity firm Welsh Carson spearheaded a roll-up strategy and created – U.S. anesthesia partners to buy out nearly every large anesthesia practice in Texas, along with a set of unlawful agreements to set prices and allocate markets. These tactics enabled uh, the company and Welsh Carson to raise prices for anesthesia services, raking in tens of millions of extra dollars for these executives at the expense of Texas patients and businesses. As quoted by the FTC chair, Lena Khan. The FTC will continue to scrutinize and, ex and challenge serial acquisitions, roll-ups, and other stealth consolidation schemes that unlawfully undermine fair competition and harm the American public. And again, these are allegations. Uh, the, the suit is ongoing. We'll keep an eye on it if we can uh, to find out what the final settlement is. Sometimes these are settled out of court or, or without uh, a lot of public scrutiny. But it's an interesting development, especially as we've been talking about, and we'll we'll talk about it in a bit, uh, the the current uh, anesthesia crisis that we're, uh, we're we're really in the middle of. So I also saw that in the California Medical Association website in April 2023 that the association noted that contracted physicians with Anthem California will be required to maintain privileges with at least one participating ASC. Anthem has advised the California Medical Association that this requirement is intended to ensure that all participating physicians who perform surgical procedures appropriate for an ASC site of service have privileges in an in-network ASC facility. Hmm. New providers wishing to join Anthem's network will now be required to report both the hospitals and ASCs at which they have privileges as part of their application process. Existing contracted providers can report new privileges and changes in ASC privileges through the current process they use for submitting demographic changes, which is the provider maintenance form located under the Contact Us page on the provider page for anthem.com slash CA. Interesting. This is an interesting development, I mm -hmm. thought. Two parts to it, Sue, I thought. Making sure, first of all, that patients have access to ASCs that are, you know, um, 
uh, that have insurance through Anthem, mm-hmm. and also encouraging physicians to use in-network ASCs. So I, it's nice to see ASCs kind of elevated to the the level of hospitals. I don't mm-hmm. know that this is. Uh, it's the only time that I've really seen an article about this. I, I, I just thought it was interesting to bring that up and probably encouraging more insurance companies to do the same thing to uh, to really get. Yeah, it's a great development. I yeah. Mean, cost savings and just, you know, promoting ASCs. ASCs That's and rem- reminding people that ASCs are out there, especially in California. We know there's mm-hmm. a lot of ASCs out there. So let's talk about the uh, anesthesia crisis. You know, Sue, so mm-hmm. during the uh, New York State Association meeting, uh, we uh, we had a pretty deep conversation about this, um, you know, and we we kind of noted during the meeting that um, a year ago was a concern, mm-hmm. uh, and now it's a crisis, literally happening within the last three months, I think, and I don't think anybody will deny uh, that we have a, a crisis here, and the crisis is really kind of a, a result of the lack of availability of anesthesia and CRNA providers and or shortage of them, and. There's also a compounded, compounding problem of the lack of appropriate payment for anesthesia services, which is driving more anesthesia groups to request stipends. In other words, money from the ASC payments by the ASC to the anesthesiologist in addition to what they get from the billing the patient and insurance companies. Mm-hmm. We've been kind of directly – not that we're the decision-making people, but with some of our clients – We've really seen this firsthand, and it's a difficult thing. Right, and it's driving changes in practice patterns. And Mm -hmm. and during the State Association conference, it was noted that a number of centers, I think about a third of them, have actually had to uh, reduce the number of rooms that are operating, reduce the services and the days that they're providing those services. So this has truly become a a crisis. Um, And during the the meeting, we brought up some very thought-provoking questions about the role of CRNAs. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm... you know, I'm I'm on the fence on this one myself, but I'll I'll say that, you know, that CRNAs have been pushing for more states to allow them to practice without the supervision of physicians, both a mm-hmm. or either an anesthesiologist or a surgeon. And, and then the concurrent issue that the physicians in those states that uh, don't allow the CRNAs to practice mm-hmm. independently, uh, not being terribly happy about supervising the CRNAs, both from a malpractice mm-hmm. standpoint, as well as, you know, just their general ability to be able mm-hmm. to supervise. I think... Well, yeah, just their comfort level, because there are physicians that really, it, it would be very difficult to to have them take the lead in any type of an anesthesia crisis. That, that's because right. Because that's not their training. Right. You know, for, we all, I, I like picking on ophthalmologists since I, I worked for them a long time. I did not want to pick on anybody in particular, <laughs> so I just but, but I think any any uh, yeah. physician that is not focused mm-hmm. on, you know, the heart yeah. and, uh, yeah. you know, is probably going to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. running a code. And, and certainly the CRNAs have a lot of training in that area. Yes. <laughs> And it is pushing us to ask the question whether we should support the CRNAs practicing without supervision, especially when such supervision might not be particularly useful. Uh, Like we talked about where the surgeons that are supervising are just very uncomfortable supervising Mm -hmm. uh, them and don't have any specific training even or ongoing training in anesthesia supervision. It's a difficult question. I've started to try to look for studies. Yeah. But – it, it just as in any research, you know, it depends who sponsored it. You know, right. you see all these differing results, and it, it's going to be hard to kind of sort through that. But it's something that I think it's going to be more and more of a question. Right. And we already know that during the pandemic, there were exceptions made, uh, you know, because there just weren't anesthesiologists available mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. Uh, either. And CRNAs, uh, you know, had to be brought in to, to do that. And I think uh, to your point, I think what we're going to be seeing is, uh, is a look back. 
uh, on yeah. the impact of uh, of not having supervision um, and to see if there's been any you know negative outcomes from it. So uh, more to come on this. I thought it was a fascinating question. As I said, I I don't you know we're not certainly having an opinion here because yeah. I think there's so much to discuss. But I think it would be very advantageous for your organization to uh, have some of those deep conversations as part of yes. your medical executive meetings and, and perhaps even in quality improvement and looking for statistics, looking for trends, uh, you know, with the CRNA super, uh, when super, when CRNAs are uh, in charge of cases. So, mm-hmm. Sue, it's uh, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Uh, the month of October, and uh, we did have an opportunity to uh, have an interview with our dear friends at Surgical Information Systems, and in particular, Paul Alcock. Um, and uh, this this was actually recorded a number of months ago, so we've been waiting for this uh, for this month mm-hmm. to do this. And uh, Paul has a, a lot of knowledge about this area. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll interview Paul Alcock about cybersecurity. When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With revenue cycle services from SIS, you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. SIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, claim preparation and submission, claim management, accounts receivable management, billing follow-up, month-end reconciling and closing processes, standard and customized reporting, and patient portion due and or balance management. By doing the heavy lifting, SIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the SIS RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor, analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoy these results from SIS Revenue Cycle Services every month. Faster claim submission, shorter time to pay, improved AR follow-up, higher net collections, expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit sysfirst.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at SIS can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's sysfirst.com to learn more about SIS Revenue Cycle Services. So as we are all aware right now, cybersecurity has become a major issue and cybersecurity incidents have become a major problem for ambulatory surgery centers. So uh, I called upon our friends over at SIS to uh, to give us uh, some uh, more information about how we can avoid these as well as to understand the magnitude of the problem. And uh, Paul Alcott is joining me from SIS. Paul, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Always a, a pleasure. And uh, 
really enjoy sharing uh, everything around cyber, raising some awareness uh, across our friends in the Huntington Resurgery Center market. But yeah, as John mentioned, my name is Paul Alcock. I am the Chief Information Security Officer over at Surgical Information Systems. I've been with the company for about five years. Uh, I really helped to develop and build and mature uh, their information security program. So quite a bit of experience, um, both in the cloud and on-prem, and, uh, and happy to share that experience with you all today. That's great. Thank you so much. Well, let's start by talking about what are some of the major threats, cybersecurity threats that we have out there. And uh, well, why don't we just start with that? Yeah, it makes sense, right? I mean, that's what we're all concerned about. We uh, we have this patient data that we need to protect, and we need to understand what we're protecting it from. And uh, and and candidly, the the threats to ASCs. Well, I mean, they're the same across healthcare in general. Healthcare continues to be a significant lucrative target for uh, adversaries looking to uh, gain financially. And um, the the attack methods themselves really haven't changed too much. Uh, in the last several years, we still see a ton of phishing emails being used to gain that initial access into organizations. Uh, ransomware, again, huge, not just in healthcare, but across the board. And uh, for several reasons, it just continues to, uh, to, to grow in popularity amongst threat actors. And it's really because of the success rate that these guys are seeing in performing these types of attacks. Uh, and then again, inside a threat as well, and particularly in healthcare, we see uh, a lot of unintentional disclosure of PHI leading to, to data breaches and, and real issues with exposing that patient information. So not a huge change in the trend uh, relative to the type of attacks that we're seeing, but uh, some of the techniques have been adjusted. Obviously, uh, we've seen these types of attacks for a few years now, and, and security teams applying the appropriate controls to, defense against, to defend against those types of attacks. And so... The bad guys see this. They see that their success rate starts to decline a little bit, so they shift up some of their tactics uh, to make sure that they're they're ultimately going to get what they want, uh, and that is financial uh, gain, typically through extortion. So uh, we can talk a little bit about some of those adjustments in tactics, if you like, John. Or yeah, yeah, go for it. I think that would be interesting. I think we've we've all read about um, you know the the standard things, and we know about being very careful with emails, but. Uh, there's a lot of other things going on, especially with uh, the increase in um, uh, use of mobile devices, too. You might want to address that. Yeah. So that's that's, all, that's often a gap, right? We don't always consider mobile devices, particularly cell phones, uh, and, and the threat or the potential exposure that comes from accessing uh, our corporate resources through those devices. So, uh, And then you've also got that challenge, right? We've got, we've got these, these personal devices. Some organizations may issue cell phones, but I think the majority are, are, are allowing or permitting these personal devices to be used to access things like email, maybe some file sharing that you use from a, from a company standpoint. I mean, Microsoft has a ton of productivity suites, and we all know and love Microsoft and some of the capabilities that those productivity tools provide. But how do we secure that on, on a personal device? And that's, that's a big consideration. How far can we go as a company securing somebody else's personal property. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges, right? So well, thankfully, there are tools out there that if, we, if we're able to purchase and adopt and, and enroll with our, throughout our organization, uh, these particular tools can isolate certain applications that are used specifically for uh, corporate resources. So again, I'll come back to email. It's, it's the number one tool that we all use across the business. If, for example, we've got an email application, Outlook, 
that's being used to access corporate email that we can apply through some of these tools. Um, and I, I use Microsoft, that's the tool that we use internally, uh, to segment that data on the personal device to protect that data, apply some additional controls to that data without impacting the user's personal, personal settings. Again, if there is an issue, say the account's compromised in some way, uh, and we're concerned that that compromise could lead to an exposure of that email uh, data, we can go ahead and wipe that, just that segmented piece from that, that personal device without touching any of that individual user's uh, sensitive personal information, their photographs, their own personal email, or anything else they might have on that device that, that is theirs. Ultimately, it's not ours. We shouldn't be touching that. So uh, it's a challenge. We've got that barrier between what's personal and what's corporate, but ultimately we need to protect what's important to the business, what's important to our patients. And some of these tools give some really good capabilities and ability to do that. So it's an interesting question. You know, are small or large organizations uh, are more prone uh, than the other to these types of issues, or should everybody be concerned? I think I know the answer, but go for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody needs to be concerned. But I think there is this common misconception that we see uh, when we talk to some of our clients, potential clients, um, that maybe aren't quite as sophisticated or have not been exposed to some of these risks. Um, uh, and these threat actor groups that they're too small for these groups to be targeting, that they don't have anything of value, it'd be too much effort, uh, and it's actually the reverse. Uh, we see a lot of these larger health systems targeted uh, in the mainstream media. We don't see so much about the smaller ISCs, the smaller organizations, but typically due to lack of resources or, or again, just not being exposed or aware of the, the risk from a cyber standpoint, they don't have the level of maturity to be able to defend these types of attacks. So they can be easy targets. And also we often see these small businesses being a way into some of the larger organizations and health systems. You've got these smaller ASCs who are part of a larger health system. They're connected through systems and networks. The smaller ASC doesn't necessarily have the controls or the internal resources to be able to identify and respond to uh, malicious activity. And then Bad guys, they see that, they get in, and they use that to pivot to the larger health system. So, yeah, to answer your question, um, both small and large organizations are prone to these threats. Uh, but just don't think that you're too small. Don't think you're too small for these guys to look at because they 100% are looking at your organization and, and hopefully trying to find uh, a way in. Yeah, and, and that's a very good point, too, is that we we see the news with the big organizations. We don't see... Uh, the smaller ones in the news all the time, but I, I can speak from experience. You know that you know we've known of centers, uh, ASCs, relatively small centers. You know, large centers, both uh, that have been affected by it, and and have been uh, the amount of work that goes into recovering oh, yeah. from a, a ransomware event is is enormous, and 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 the downtime and uh, that you you have from that organization. Sometimes you can yeah. literally put out a business until you're able to recover all of your data. I also address the issue. Uh, one one point to make is we've had a center that uh, was uh, that relied on the hospital for pathology and for pre-op information. The hospital was um, ransomware attacked, uh, and and again, many of our surgery centers are affiliated with practices, uh, and the practice might you know the surgery center might have had a good 
um, system in place and was not uh, attacked, but the practice was, which then had an impact on the organization. So we we need to be aware that it's not just our center that we have to worry about. We exactly. have everybody that we work with. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you, going back to you, you obviously know of, of surgery centers who've been through this, the pain and turmoil of having to respond to these ransomware type attacks. And I got to be honest, I, I'm, we see it all the time. Uh, barely a, a week or a couple of weeks go by without somebody reaching out who was looking for assistance because they've they've been through it, they're feeling it, uh, and they're in the process of trying to get back up uh, and running. And that can be. I mean, depending on on the the controls that you have in place, the backup strategy that you have in place, that can be uh, a, a real feat to get the business back up and running. Well, and sometimes you, I mean, I've heard that you have to pay the ransom. I mean, sometimes there's no other alternative. Unfortunately, it's a good thing to have yeah. it at that point, uh, but that that um, it just it, it always kills me when I hear that the ransom had to be paid or a ransom had to be paid. Yeah, it's a controversial topic for sure, right? Whether or not do you pay, do you not to pay? Uh, and we all like to think that we would take the, the moral high ground and know we're not going to perpetuate this by by financing these types of attacks. But ultimately, when your business is at stake, I mean, what do you do? Uh, sometimes you have no choice but to pay these ransoms. And I certainly wouldn't look down on an organization who, who'd made that decision to get their business back up and running and secure that patient data because ultimately that's what we're there to protect. Right, it's patient data. It's people's livelihoods that we are protecting. Uh, and if we need to, if we need to, to pay the ransom, then yeah, we, we need to go ahead and pay Get that back up and running. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned cyber insurance too, and yeah, that'd be great uh, to have that to fall back on in these types of events. But for anyone listening who's been through a cyber insurance renewal lately, uh, that's getting more and more challenging. Uh, to obtain that insurance, they're requiring stricter controls, more sophisticated controls and resources dedicated to security. Um, so yeah, cyber insurance is great, but premiums are at an all-time high and even getting coverage can be a significant challenge right now. Yeah, we we just went through uh, 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 renewing our policy too and had to put far more controls through our email, which is not even a server-based email, uh, of course, yeah. to make sure that the people couldn't get access to it. Of course, we, you know, we're, we, you know, we have to be careful with everything that we do because the amount of contact we have with our clients. So uh, there's there's certainly a, um, quite a level of trust involved there. Uh, sure. So you recommend, are there different types of cyber insurance or cybersecurity insurance that they can get that uh, you would look to, especially as SIS? Are, is that something that you recommend, you know, for your clients to have? Uh, I'm not going to speak on behalf of, of CIS relative to uh, cyber insurance, but yeah, I mean, it's it's about transferring that that risk, right? If we don't have maybe the internal capabilities to to be confident that we're doing everything we can to prevent this, then, I mean, let's be honest, chances are at some point you're going to get hit. If you don't have the controls in place to secure your environment, if you're running legacy systems, you're not using multi-factor authentication, uh, you're at risk and uh, and you need some form of protection behind risk for when you do get hit. It's all about protecting your business. Uh, so I personally would definitely recommend if you can obtain cyber insurance. Now, the challenge is, as you just mentioned, uh, and I referenced a couple of controls that you may not have in place. If you don't have those controls in place, it's sometimes uh, nearly impossible to obtain cyber insurance in the first place. So yeah, uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? We're actually kind of touching upon uh, security assessments here. As you mentioned, sometimes you the only alternative you have 
to protect yourself is to buy insurance. There's certain controls you just can't possibly, there's certain risks that you can't possibly completely eliminate. Can you yeah. talk a bit about um, um, security assessments and who should be doing it and how frequently? Do you have any suggestions in that area? Yeah. So, um, again, this it all comes down to the resources you have available and prioritizing what is critical to you uh, as a business. So if you, I mean, we're in healthcare, uh, some element of your business is going to be storing, processing, transmitting patient data. And that's really where you want to focus your security assessments. Now, it may be that it's a third party that's doing that on your behalf, um, similar to, to CIS, for example. Obviously, we store, process, transmit patient data on behalf of our clients. So we 100% expect our clients need some comfort and, and uh, assurance that we're doing everything we need to do to protect their patient data. And so we often see security assessments from our clients uh, asking us to validate the controls, uh, our information security program and everything that we have in place to protect their data. And likewise, any other vendor that they are relying on for critical business processes, you need to, they're an extension of your business. You need to ensure that they have the appropriate controls in place to protect that. Now, um, You've also got internal considerations, being able to identify vulnerabilities within your own internal business environment. If you have on-prem servers, if you have servers that you are managing, you're going to want to understand the vulnerabilities with those servers, with those networks, and what you can do to protect it. And it's not always an expensive fix to get these, these vulnerabilities remediated. For the most part, you could probably mitigate 90% of risk plus real simple uh, controls that you can implement for next to nothing, financially speaking. So um, security assessments, critically important, uh, particularly for vendors who are going to be leaning on, relying on for your business processes um, and continuation of business. Uh, internally, you always want to make sure you understand your environment and what, what vulnerabilities may exist there. And there are a ton of firms out there who can help you do that. And again, Depending on your financial resource, how much you're willing uh, to spend on those assessments, you can go for some big name firms to perform them for you, or there's some smaller firms out there, some more boutique style firms who specialize in these types of, of assessments. But you always want a third party uh, taking care of that for you, advising you on what they find uh, and how best to remediate. And especially a firm that is uh, that that specifically deals with cybersecurity issues. Exactly. Yeah. Preferably healthcare as well. Yeah. And it should be separate from uh, your software or hardware vendor as, as I think. Yeah. We don't want any conflict of interest there, right? We want to make sure that these are fully independent security assessments that uh, really have our best interests at heart. Yeah. Paul, you brought up another point too, is that, you know, we, we, when we think about uh, HIPAA type issues, when we think about uh, the loss of, uh, or the, the potential for data getting out into the, the, into the public, uh, we're often thinking about our scheduling system. We're thinking about our medical record system, our billing system, et cetera, where there's a, a very large amount of that data that's uh, that that could uh, could severely damage your business. But even your file server, uh, where you're keeping the minutes of your uh, governing body, of your quality improvement, of your medical executive committee, your staff meetings, you know, there's there's often a lot of patient data in there yeah. uh, by nature of that. So. Um, you, and, and you mentioned there's a lot of different ways of, of saving files today, but, uh, the old, fi you know, uh, client server type system where you're saving the files locally, either on the computer or on a file server, um, 
you know, could be problematic also. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that and, you know, where should we be saving those things and, and where's the industry heading? Yeah. So, I mean, we're, no doubt we are seeing more organizations looking to the cloud for those types of services. Um, some organizations are a little slow to adopt that, those new technologies. Uh, they prefer, for whatever reason, to keep it on their own internal servers and systems. I think the biggest thing when it comes to evaluating that risk is you need to know where that data is. And I, I guarantee for anybody that's listening, you'll be surprised at where your patient data resides within your network that you are currently unaware of. Um, we have dedicated systems and servers, as you mentioned, John, for servers that we typically say, okay, that is dedicated for patient data. But if you were to do some kind of inventory or scan of your environment looking for that patient data, I'm sure that organizations, ASCs, will be surprised at just where that patient data is, is being flagged and being identified. Uh, and a lot of those are unsecure systems or, or maybe systems that don't have the level of protections around them that, uh, that we would like. Uh, as far as, again, where, where the industry's heading, we are seeing more and more organizations look into the cloud for these types of services. Uh, and that can be, I'm not going to say is it, it's more secure in the cloud. I think there's pros and cons. Um, again, another misconception is we move to the cloud, we wipe our hands of all responsibility. The cloud is going to take care of security for us. It's not strictly true. Uh, you're all, you're always going to be responsible for access to that that data. Whoever you give credentials to is going to be accessing that data, and that's going to fall to you to manage those credentials, uh, to manage those accounts, make sure that the appropriate people have the appropriate privilege to access those systems. But on the flip side, those cloud providers, uh, those SaaS providers, they typically do have uh, larger resources to be able to protect that data. They they have dedicated security teams watching that environment 24-7. They have all the latest security technologies and controls in place uh, to monitor that environment and monitor that data. Um, but it is, make no mistake, it is a shared responsibility. A lot of that responsibility falls to the cloud provider, but you do have uh, some responsibility to, to maintain also. Yeah, once it gets to the cloud too, they're... Uh... Uh, the access, the ability to access it on multiple types of devices, such as, you know, personal computers, uh, you know, cell phones, tablets, et cetera, uh, outside of that. And when you do that, you open it up to outside the organization. If you have a file server, you can keep everything in house. That's nice to be able to control. Of course, then you have to worry about, you know, uh, uh, bad actors coming in and, you know, yeah. securing your data or taking that data away from you. Um, but, uh, but at least you have more control over the physical device. Once it gets yeah. out of the cloud, you've got a ton of other physical devices that have that access. Uh, it's yeah, that, I mean, content. that could be a pro and a con, right? That can be because we've got the additional availability now, the flexibility of if we've got physicians operating outside the office, they can now connect to the cloud from wherever they are uh, and access the, the files or the applications or whatever it is that you have. Uh, look to the cloud to support on your behalf. Um, but again, it's another double-edged sword. So can the bad actors. If it's out on the public internet and accessible from anywhere, then should a bad actor gain access to someone's credentials or a phishing email, like we touched on a little bit uh, right at the start of our podcast, um, then that can expose your data in that way. So we always want to make sure if you are moving to the cloud and you are having uh, that open access, we are 
support in that access from really any location. There are some additional controls that we can put in place to make sure that we're really validating the identity of those users accessing that data. Things like multi-factor authentication would be the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, and there is the ability as well for some of these cloud applications to limit uh, IP addresses that are accessing those cloud resources. So yes, maybe you don't want to allow anybody in the world to see the URL to be able to uh, get that login prompt. And we just allow that from your facility IP, for example, uh, which again, greatly reduces the attack surface in that system. One thing I always want to leave our listeners with is some like immediate action plans, uh, immediate things they can do. Uh, you know, if if they're uh, heading to the office and listening to us in the car on the way in, what are what are some of those easy things that they can do to to start this process of increasing the their protection? So, um, easiest things to do is uh, first thing if you go again into the office, make sure your systems are up to date. Get in there, get all your, your your laptops, your desktops, your servers. Make sure that those those systems have the latest patches. If you are running operating systems that are that are end of life, no longer supported, we need to get off those as soon as possible. That end of life, that that lack of support means that if there are security vulnerabilities in those systems, Microsoft or whoever your vendor is are not releasing security updates to fix those vulnerabilities, and that's ultimately leaving you exposed. So, packing your systems. Uh, regularly, uh, and just for those listening, if you are using Microsoft every month, Microsoft releases their updates. We can go ahead and get those installed and pushed up. Uh, start looking at who has access to what within your environment. I think um, far too often we see organizations opting for convenience over security, and they'll tend to give employees full access to everything, um, and that's not that's not needed. If those are, if those accounts that are ultimately compromised, and we, again we see through phishing emails, that's the number one attack vector to gain initial access into organizations. Then we've given essentially uh, the bad guys the keys to the kingdom. So let's look at who has access to what, and really think about whether or not we can trim some of that access out. Do does everybody need access to everything, or can we limit what certain folks have access to, and ultimately then limit the impact if those accounts were ever compromised. Uh, things like remote access to the internet, uh, we see all the time um, organizations being compromised because they have remote desktop protocol, for example, open up to the internet. Um, that's a huge red flag. Uh, and any any bad actor who sees that is going to be licking his lips because it's just uh, it's an easy way into organizations. So let's go ahead and remove that RDP access or protect it with things like VPNs. Um, if you have technologies internally that that allow you to use multi-factor authentication, please go ahead and turn them on. Uh, that can significantly reduce your risk there by ensuring that whoever it is that's accessing that account, whether those credentials have been compromised or not, it's going to be much harder for an adversary to gain access to your environment, your system, to your applications, if they happen to provide that second fact. So uh, multi-factor authentication is huge. Um, it's not the answer to everything, but it significantly reduces your risk if you have that turned on and in place. And employee training as well. I mean, that's not something you can do right out the bat. It is relatively cheap and inexpensive. There are plenty of providers out there who do this for a, for a pretty reasonable fee. Um, but if you have your employees, they're the ones on the front lines. They're the ones uh, that are going to be targeted by these threat actors. They're the ones receiving these phishing emails. It's only right that we give them the skills and the knowledge to be able to appropriately identify those emails and, even more importantly, report them 
uh, to the appropriate folks so we can go ahead and deal with that. So a couple of things there, training your employees, patch your systems, reduce your, your, your access to those who, who need it, uh, multi-factor authentication, move in RDP. I mean, none of that really costs anything outside of the training. It's all, it's all pretty much free and pretty quick to implement yeah, and and of course the obvious things like making sure your passport passwords are are updated on a regular long and complex and yeah password managers if you can employ those uh, throughout your organization and that just helps. I mean we know people reuse passwords and that's yeah. often an issue too. You get a password that's compromised in one database for another, uh, maybe cloud solution, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it may be. If they're using that password across everything, then now the bad actor's got access to multiple accounts. Uh, using the same credentials. So, yeah, we want long, strong passwords. We want uh, all that good stuff, password managers to help protect, create strong, long credentials. Yeah, and I, I do want to remind everybody, too, that uh, with all the turnover that we're experiencing in our centers with uh, play employees moving from one place to another, make sure that you delete those individuals that are no longer with you uh, the minute they walk out the door. Um, yeah. Uh, we we uh, we find that as we when we go into centers that uh, you know we we ask these questions and we find out that oh yeah the system still has the uh, administrator from three years ago you know with login privileges uh, and especially and, and of course this is both for local systems as well as cloud based systems that's the easiest way to, uh, to lose control uh, and of course sometimes people leave you know for not great reasons and they might not be happy with you. Uh, even more of a reason to make sure that you get rid of uh, their their access. You brought up uh, training, and I, I really encourage that. Of course, we're a training company, so that's a, a big thing for us. But um, uh, make sure that your training is up to date. I'll, I'll put a plug in for you guys over at SIS because one of the complaints that I, I find, uh, not complaints, but when I walk into a center and people are saying, well, we don't quite know how to do this, or I have a brand-new employee uh, that I brought on board and I showed them how to uh, – how to you know do the coding and billing uh, or or scheduling? I I often point out it really is important to go back periodically to the source uh, for training. Don't always rely upon you know somebody else in your organization to train on on using the computer systems because uh, uh, just like a copy that's been copied and copied over and over again, that training doesn't. Uh, uh, well, first of all, it's not always up to date, and second, it doesn't always get all the important. Uh, uh, points across. So uh, training, training, training uh, on not only the how to use the systems properly to protect them, uh, but you know the importance of password protection, the importance of of safeguarding things when you're in, you know outside. You know, with the advent of people working from home now, in many cases, uh, there's so many more opportunities for people to gain access to information and and other doors. Yeah into your computer systems that were not available uh, before the pandemic, before we, we learned anything about this uh, offsite uh, uh, work ethic that we, we suddenly have. Just uh, on the, something else that we strongly encourage and something that we do internally at CIS, and as part of that training and that awareness program is uh, periodic, in fact, monthly uh, simulated phishing campaigns, because that can be a great indicator as to uh, just how resilient your workforce is to these types of attacks. If you send out some fake phishing emails uh, and monitor who's clicking links, who's downloading attachments. And also uh, one of the critical metrics that we like to track is who's reporting. Can't stress enough how important it is for individuals to report these things to the appropriate folks. Now, obviously, CIS has a dedicated security team, 
you may not have that internally, but somebody in the center should be responsible for security or take on that security hat uh, in some fashion. And uh, being aware of those employees who may need some additional training, uh, a little bit more focused on being able to identify phishing emails, um, I think those phishing campaigns can be really beneficial in highlighting that across the that's a real good example, Paul. I I, uh, I do some work for a local uh, college and university there. Uh, they almost kind of do that annoyingly uh, <laughs> periodically. And, and, of course, immediately everybody responds back saying, hey, by the way, I think somebody's trying to do attack. And it must be, a, yeah. a, you know, that be careful what you wish for over in the IT department because uh, we're a pretty sophisticated group of people there. I'm sure they get a million emails saying somebody's trying to hack in. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that that is a good way to find out who might not be might have not gone through the training properly or or doesn't yeah. have training. And I'll also uh, point out too that uh, I I don't know about you, but I'm seeing just as many uh, phishing uh, attempts on my cell phone on, on my um, text messages as I am yeah. on the computer now. Uh, you know, the computer's doing a good job, or the emails are doing a good job of of um, filtering them out, but the, not so much with the uh, text messages. Yeah, the smishing, smishing, we refer to that, right? When you get those SMS messages that are asking to click a link. Yeah. Right? Even that, I've seen that, uh, a shift in the phishing emails recently. And again, this comes back to an adjusting of the tactics. Our adversaries, they know a lot of organizations have email security, looking out for malicious links, URLs, attachments, and blocking them before they make it to a, an employee's mailbox. But I'm starting to see um, a lot more recently where they're actually the bad guys are hosting the the malicious stuff up in a legitimate cloud platform. Like they'll host it in SharePoint.com or they'll host it in, uh, in Google Drive or Box.com. The links that come through, the email security uh, tools are legitimate. I mean, SharePoint.com is a legitimate website, so they typically pass through. Then when the user clicks it, they're taken to an online SharePoint.com website where there's another um, clickbait up there trying to get them to access the malicious content. I've seen that's one one method being deployed. Uh, so definitely keep an eye out for that just because it says it's taking you to a, a legitimate website. Once you get there, there may be some malicious content waiting for you. That's a good point. And I was, uh, as, a, as somebody that deals with uh, checklists all the time from a quality improvement standpoint and and uh, emergency preparedness and, and uh uh, checklists that help us to make sure that everything is in place. You might want to have somebody walking around also on a on a weekly or monthly basis, just checking, make sure passwords are not um, readily accessible on uh, workstations, yeah. and uh, people are logging out of their computer, uh, you know, uh, uh, immediately after using the computer, et cetera. Just some, you know, some of those obvious uh, uh, things. Yeah. And, and as you made a good point about trying to find somebody in your organization that'll take some responsibility, even if it's a part time type role, you know, somebody that's going to be uh, responsible for kind of auditing and retraining and answering questions from people when they get that suspicious email, Yeah, um, you know, and sometimes legitimate emails come through and rare, uh, that, uh, that might, you know, you might question, um, uh, and you know, certainly you want to make sure somebody looks at it before they, uh, they push that button or, or hit that link. Yeah. Way better to check. That's right. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Uh, hopefully our our uh, listeners here will get some uh, good advice and immediately take some uh, actions here as well as uh, look into uh, uh, starting that movement away from uh, the, the higher risk uh, things such as uh, local servers, et cetera. I appreciate yeah. it. 
Anyway, thank you, John. Been a pleasure. Enjoyed being here. Thank you. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. The Washington Ambulatory Surgery Association's Annual Education Conference and Trade Show is November 9th and 10th, 2023 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. I'll be speaking there, and we hope to have a special episode with interviews. I'm going to have to uh, get that moving. I mean, that's only a month away right now. So um, I had a lot of fun last year when I was up there, and I'm looking forward to going back again. And our introduction to finance and accounting for ambulatory surgery centers is going to be November 16th, 2023. It's a live virtual conference, and it'll be on demand after that date. And then the following day, uh, the ASC Conditions for Coverage and Interpretive Guidelines Conference will be November 17th, 2023. It will also be a live virtual conference and on demand after that date. And we're moving into looking at next year. Ask Us 2024 conference will be at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida, April 17th through the 20th, 2024. And I'll be doing two speeches there. I'm going to be talking about uh, developing financial projections, and I'll also have a session on governance. And the Georgia Society of ASCs and South Carolina ASC Association's joint semi-annual conference and trade shows is February 22nd through the 23rd, 2024, in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Western Atlanta Perimeter North, and August 15th and 16th, 2024, at um, Hilton Head, South Carolina, Marriott Hilton Head Resort and Spa. We'll have to try to get down there, Sue. Mm-hmm. That's uh, uh, We have a place down in Hilton Head, so maybe we can uh, make that trip tax deductible for once. <laughs> <laughs> and the Gulf States Conference, which includes Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, will be June 11th through the 13th, 2024, in Biloxi, Mississippi, at the Beau Rivage Resort and Casino. I hope I promise uh, pr- pronounce that properly. Beau Rivage? Rivage? It sounded good to me. Okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, the Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 4th and 5th, 2024, in Daytona Beach, Florida, the Hilton Oceanfront Resort. And their annual conference and trade show is July 17th through the 19th. 2024 in Orlando, Florida, the Signia by Hilton, Orlando, Bonnet Creek. And the Tennessee Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's conference will be September 12th through the 13th, 2024 in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Chattanooga. <laughs> Don't forget about our upcoming boot camps. The October cohort of the ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp will be October 31st through November 3rd. The January 2024 cohort of the ASC Administrators Boot Camp will be January 23rd through the 28th, 2024. And more information is available on our website at ASCpodcast.com or our new website at ASC-Central.com where you can uh, sign up immediately. There's also on-demand versions of the ASC Director of Nursing and the ASC Administrators Boot Camp, uh, which is available again on our sister website at ASC-Central.com. And also, don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on asc-central.com. 
The credentialing conference was recorded in 2020, and the medical director conference recorded in 2021. And also, you might be interested in our June 2023 on-demand version of our multi-state conference, which is eligible for 16 AEUs and four IPCH credits. The conference includes uh, great sessions on infection control, life safety, survey preparation, human resources, and introduction to the Medicare ASC payment system, uh, pharmacy, and staff retention. Uh, and it's a very reasonable price. It's uh, $299.99 uh, to get you 16 AEUs and four IPCH credits. And we're already planning for the 2024 multi-state conference, which will also uh, be in June, um, in this case in 2024. And, of course, we do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The Patron Member Program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, business office managers. And resources include access to some of our virtual conferences, uh, links to various resources, policies and procedures, forms, and fire and disaster drills. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, please visit asc-central.com. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. If you found this episode informative, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We would love any feedback about our episodes or ideas for future episodes by sending us an email at comments at ASCpodcast.com. We'd like to give a special thank you to our great team who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team of Jenna Alvarez, Judah D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kalaritis, Jim Masters, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, and Christina Norman. We couldn't do it without them. And uh, again, it's, it's, I have an incredible team here uh, that uh, are supporting all of the, the work we do. And our music was provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules regulations and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.